This is the City Surgery on City Talk 105.9. And it's City Talk 105.9. Good afternoon. My name's Mick Coyle. Welcome to the Legal Surgery. We are joined in the studio as ever for a Thursday afternoon by our resident solicitor, Mark Ellis. Mark, great to see you once again. Thank you, Mick. Great to see you. Uh, Mark is from James Murray Solicitors and he joins us every Thursday to answer your legal questions. What legal questions are those? Well, they are the questions which have been emailed into City Talk 105.9 over the course of the week, possibly by you, but by our listeners who are after a bit of free legal advice on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, you can send them in via the email surgery at citytalk.fm. If you've got a legal issue that you want to get sorted as part of next week's show, send that in at any point over the course of the week. It might be about uh, family matters. It might be to do with things like divorce. It might be to do with things like problem neighbours or maybe a speeding ticket or a fine or something like that that you want to dispute. Get some legal advice right here on City Talk 105.9 with Mark Ellis, who uh, uh, is uh, directly targeted in this first email. Dear Mark Ellis, it says. Isn't that lovely? I have a cheque from my late father, which was given two days before his death. I am the executor of the will. Am I allowed to cash this cheque? I believe it was his wish, and me being the executor should complete this and not seek. Should I complete this and not seek the permission of the other beneficiaries? The check is for twenty thousand pounds, and would result in a three thousand three hundred and thirty-three pound reduction in final payment to the other five beneficiaries. Your thoughts, and where the law stands on such matters, would be most helpful. Anon, that come through anonymously, and that's absolutely fine. You don't have to give your name when you email in the show. If somebody dies, but they've written you a check mark, uh, where, do, where does that stand yeah, uh, legally? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Interesting concept, really. I suppose the starting point is: look, he's given you this check in good faith. It's signed by him. I'm guessing it would be honoured by the bank. Uh, was it a loan? Uh, was it a debt that father owed son? I don't know. I mean, you need to expand a little bit on why the money was uh, was given to you and why you didn't cash it. Um, as promptly as as clearly you know you haven't done um, because you, you you still have the check now and I suppose the other thing to throw into the equation is how long ago was it that, that dad died if we're talking about you know six twelve eighteen months ago when you come across this check um, then there may be an argument to say well don't touch it because it forms part of father's estate so I think there are a number of factors there in that equation that you'd have to you'd have to bear in mind you know what was the check for is it to pay off a debt because the reason I, I ask you that question is you're an executor of the will and as you know uh, as an executor one of your jobs is to bring in all the debts and uh, the expenses etc deal with the debts deal with the expenses and whatever's left from all of that you distribute in accordance with the will. Now, if it's a debt that um, Dad owes you and he's paid you back, then you could either cash that cheque, I suppose, with, and I would mention it to the to the other executives if there are any, just to make sure that everyone knows you're playing above board. Um, or, quite simply, you, you say to yourself, well, um, I'm the executor, I will therefore, um, it's a debt that's owed to me, and therefore I'll put it through the estate and simply pay myself off through the estate because, of course, uh, that's one of your jobs. So, uh, you know, it, a number of factors really you could do either simply cash that check, but I would let everybody know, or as the executor, you simply say, okay, if it's a debt that's owed me, I will I will pay it through the estate. If you're an executor of a mm. will, is I mean, presumably, I don't know if it's a legal issue, but presumably to be as open and honest with people as possible with every single penny that you're you're dealing with aids you in the long term, doesn't it? I think it does. I think it's from a commonsensical point of view, Mick, you're absolutely right. If you are going to be saying to yourself, well, look, I'm going to play with a straight bat here and let everybody know, 
um, then that becomes highly relevant and people will be less suspicious. I think the points that I made at the beginning, such as, you know, the time that's elapsed since um, since father's passing, if you were talking about a couple of days, then I think there's there's justification in you saying, well, I'm, look, I'm going to cash this cheque, Dad gave it to me, and letting other people know. Certainly if there are other executors, uh, that you, you mention it to the other executor and say that. Um, but, look, if we're talking six months, the, the, the fir- what I'm saying in essence is that the longer the time scale the less likely it is that you're justified in cashing that cheque. Uh, and I think you, only you know, obviously, and you haven't put it as part of the question. And I don't dispute that, and, and, and you know, you don't have to, to disclose this to us. But I think that the longer the timescale that's gone on, the more likely it is, you, but you're best saying, I won't bother it, I won't bother with this cheque, I will just deal with whatever comes out of, the, of the, um, the pipeline once we've paid off all the debts and testamentary expenses. OK, thank you for sending that question in. Correspondent, surgery at citytalk.fm. If you've got a legal question for our resident solicitor, Mark Ellis, that's surgery at citytalk.fm. I mean, try and be as uh, concise as you can with the information, but try and leave in as many key points as you can. Often people put their own opinions Mm. on their legal situation. And although we appreciate uh, everybody who contacts this uh, show uh, putting in as much information as they can, try and make it as concise and as factual because then Mark will probably be able to give you uh, the best response that he can in the short time that we have here on the legal surgery. Uh, Denise says, Dear Legal Surgery, I have been dismissed from my job after nearly four months. I had asked for one month's salary in lieu of notice, but have been told that I will only receive one week's salary as they have reserved the right to extend my initial three-month probationary period to six months. Are they within their rights to do this, Denise asks? Really simple um, response. Check the contract. Check the terms of business that you have. If you don't have a written contract, do they have terms of business and see what the terms of business are? And that will tell you whether they're entitled to do it or not. They're saying they're extending your probationary period. Well, what does your contract say? Does it entitle them to do that? Uh, If so, are there certain things they have to do in order to to extend your probationary period, i.e. serve you notice or give you notice that that's what they're going to do? So check that. Um, On on the face of it, yes, they can possibly do it, uh, but it all depends and the starting point has to be, what does your contract say? Now, you may say, hey, listen, I don't have a contract, never had one. Started work there, they never mentioned contracts to me. And, you know, amazingly, that actually happens quite often. If that is the case, then you must have been referred at some stage to a written statement of terms. Um, if there is no contract, then it's, you know, it's, it's, it's basically down to what you've agreed orally. Uh, and if no such mention was made of, of uh, probationary periods and the like, then you could quite arguably say, hang on a minute, you're in breach of contract. I'm entitled to a, a, a month's notice rather than um, a week, a week's salary. So that's what it boils down to. What have you been told and what have you agreed fundamentally? Go back to that and that's where you'll find the answer. Okay, uh, Denise, thank you for your question. Surgery at citytalk.fm. I need some advice, please, says Mark. He says, I was stopped in August 2013 uh, for speeding. Apparently, I was going 48 in a 30. I waited quite a few weeks before I received a letter saying I would be fined £100 and receive three points on my licence and that I had 28 days to pay and submit my licence. This was late November. I received my license back with a letter saying they had not been able to receive payment from my bank. I attempted to call the traffic office, but after calling a number of times and being unable to get through, I sent a postal order for £100, which cost me more to do, and I registered it. Today, I received a postal order back with my license and a letter stating that I may be summoned to court for late payment of the fine. What do I do now? My license to be taken away as I need my car for work. 
Okay, well, look, this happens quite regularly, and sometimes, for whatever reason, people don't pay on time or the police lose the paperwork. It has been known to happen, and people want to be dealt with by means of fixed penalty, but they are not for whatever reason, and as a consequence, the cheque is returned to them or they're refunded and they're told to wait for the summons, and do exactly that. Wait for the summons to come through the post, and if you still want to plead guilty to it, you can either write in to the court and plead guilty in writing or you can attend in person. And the first thing that you are going to say is, look, I was desperate to get with this dealt with by means of fixed penalty. And as a consequence, I wrote in and uh, sent my, my postal order and wanted to be dealt with that in that way. You'll probably find, therefore, the magistrates will deal with you as if you were being dealt with by means of fixed penalty, i.e. three points and a financial penalty consistent with the usual £35 that you normally um, have to pay when, you, when you're being done on a fixed penalty. So uh, don't worry too much. Nothing for you to worry about. Um, just wait for that summons and when you get it, uh, act promptly and write to the court or if you're intending to, to, uh, to go, then make sure you attend and attend promptly and smartly and just simply give your account to the magistrates that you want to be dealt with by means, by means of fixed penalty. If you've got evidence of that, you know, that's, uh, that's fantastic. All the more power to your elbow because take that with you to show it to the magistrates or to the clerk, to, uh, to the court who runs the court and to say to them, you know, there's the evidence I was, I was wanting to be dealt with by means of fixed penalty. Um, I don't know whether or not they've returned it to you because of the speed. You're doing uh, 48 and a 30, and, the ma- and I don't know if you have any points on your licence. Of course, if you have, uh, if, we, if we're talking about you being close to 12 points, then that would be one of the reasons why they've returned the, uh, the, the, the postal order back to you, because they'll be thinking to themselves, well, this guy might be liable for disqualification. 48 and a 30 uh, would justify the court in considering points uh, and and they have a discretion to disqualify also. So uh, I don't know what the state of your driving licence is like at the moment. I'm assuming there are no points on it in responding to you in this way. So the best thing to do is simply to uh, to write to the court or indeed attend, enter your guilty plea if that's what you intend to do, and make sure in your mitigation you say to them, I was desperate to be dealt with a means of fixed penalty. I attempted, and indeed I sent a postal order. And take the postal order with you if you like. When you do go to court... Take your driving licence with you, both the plastic part and the paper part, and hand that in because the court will need it to endorse it. Uh, Mark, thank you for your question. Mark Ellis, thank you for your answer. Mark Ellis is with us on City Talk 105.9. He's our resident solicitor. He's from James Murray Solicitors, and he joins us every Thursday as part of Drive Time to answer legal questions on the legal surgery. There was another uh, car-related question this week, Mark. We'll just move on to this one. I'll I'll take the name off because uh, it relates to, um, to sort of other members of a of a family, but it's got a bit of a twist on the end of this story. So, uh, dear Mark Kelly, I told my younger son to use my car. I had changed his car insurance three months before on what I thought was a like-for-like basis, erroneously believing he was still entitled to drive other cars loaned to him, i.e. mine. He was stopped by police for driving while uninsured. He was with his older brother, who contested this at the side of the road, as he knew I would never knowingly allow him to drive illegally. They allowed my older son to drive my car back home as he could prove he was insured to drive it and they followed him home. With it so far, it says they cautioned my son and said he would be summonsed. Long story short, and this is the twist here, the registration number the police recorded is actually his own car for which he of course does have valid insurance and did so at the time of the offence. What do we do? Hmm. So there's one car which he is in, which he appears to be uninsured to drive, and then when the details have come through with his registration details, it's come through on the car that he is insured insured on. Hmm. 
Yeah, OK. Well, look, it's for the, the prosecution to prove their case beyond reasonable doubt. And if they're saying that um, your son was driving that insurance, then they've got to prove that beyond reasonable doubt. And if they summons your son to court for driving a motor vehicle and they give the registration number plate being the registration number plate of the vehicle he's insured on, then, of course, what your son is going to do is to take a valid certificate of insurance and say, well, there you go, I'm covered. And the summons may well reflect that it's the correct uh, registration number plate, i.e. your son's and therefore he's covered. However, the, the, the prosecution have a discretion to do a number of things. And one of them is, if someone is summons for an offence, and let's say some of the details on that summons are a little bit inaccurate, for instance, uh, name places or indeed registration number plates, the prosecution can change that and they can change it right up to really the close of the, 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 the trial. So if you were to have a trial and if you were to say, well, actually, I have, I have an insurance certificate for that, but the police officer gives evidence and when he looks at his notebook, he says, oops, I've made a mistake there. Actually, the registration number plate was, and he gives the other number plate, the, the one that he was driving at the time. And the prosecution, if they have their senses about them, will make an application to amend the summons. And that's you sort of um, snookered, so to speak. Mm. So you've got two ways of looking at it. The first way is... Um, clearly, from what your son is saying, he's going to have to have a court hearing in any event, either for a not guilty plea, if the prosecution are maintaining that, that it's the other motor, motor vehicle, because, of course, your son has insurance for that, so he could enter a not guilty plea, or if they were to change the, that uh, registration number plate and, and put the one that he was actually driving on, your son wouldn't necessarily have a defence but he would have what we would call a special reason as to why his licence wouldn't be endorsed because, of course, he's going to get a minimum of six penalty points for driving without insurance. If he's a probationary driver, if he's been driving, only passed his test in the last two years, then his licence would be revoked if he were to have six points imposed on it. Now, the account that you have given in your email to us may well justify uh, what we call a special reason, and it must relate to the offence and not the offender. So when I say that, I mean the fact that your son might suffer hardship if he were to be disqualified from driving, that would be irrelevant. Um, but the offence, has he been in some way, shape or form misled by somebody? Now, it, clearly from your email, what you seem to be saying is that you have told your son uh, that he was covered to drive that motor vehicle. And it would seem to be that your son was reliant upon you and the advice that you gave him. Now, it would probably mean if um, if it went to court, you would have to give evidence as to your account. And if the court accepted what you said, uh, then th your son, although he'd be pleading guilty to driving that insurance, may well be exonerated, ironically, uh, by the court not imposing penalty points. If they found for your son, if they said, OK, he's guilty, because in essence no insurance is a strict liability offence, you either do it or you don't. But if they feel, they have the view hang on a second, there's a special reason here, this young boy has been misled in some way, he's relied upon information which is incorrect, then they may take the view, OK, that's a special reason and therefore your licence won't be endorsed. And it, and it can happen. Now, if you, for instance, had a business and you instructed your son as part of the business to, to drive that motor vehicle and assure him uh, that um, he can drive it and it's part of his employment and he goes off to do that job, that's something slightly different. That would in, that would entitle your son. It's one of the very few defences that are available for no insurance, Mick. Um, if you are an employee, my boss told me to go. My boss told me to, to to drive that vehicle. My boss told me 
that I was insured to drive that motor vehicle. Now, in that particular scenario, he would have a, a, a defence. Of course, it would mean mum, if mum or dad are the employers, then they would have to give evidence as well. So you know the reason for it. If it's simply mum saying to son, yep, there's your car, go and drive and go and see your pals, that defence wouldn't apply. But you've still potentially got that special reason. So really, don't panic. You need a hearing because the, the police can't work this out. They're, they're not entitled to, to make de- 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 determinations as to whether someone has a special reason or not. They simply and quite correctly put it before the court. You should welcome that as an opportunity. Uh, go to court, uh, and as far as the registration number plate is concerned, you could enter a not guilty plea, take the certificate of insurance, and if the it's for the prosecutor to prove their case, and if they feel satisfied with the with the documentation that you've handed to them, um, the, the proceedings may be withdrawn uh, by the Crown. But if they've done their homework and they know that a mistake's been made, that summons will be altered, and all that will change for you then will be you'd move from a not guilty plea to special reason. The best thing to do, really, when you go to court and, and you're asked questions by the clerk as to what your defence is, simply explain that for the time being it's a not guilty plea, but it may turn out to be a special reasons argument instead, and the court will allocate sufficient time for both. OK, uh, just got a couple of minutes left. Um, we've talked a lot on this programme about when we talk about property, joint tenants or tenants in common. Uh, email comes through, uh, and I've cut the name off the end, it says, uh, I'm a tenant in common with my ex-partner. We have a 50% share on the deed of trust. I put £40,000 toward a purchase price of a house, this is. He paid nothing, uh, but did put his name on the mortgage. Uh, the property in dispute is rented out. My ex-partner has been made bankrupt, and the trustee in bankruptcy said they are not interested in the property because it's in negative equity. Uh, My ex collects around £2,000 per month and the mortgage payments are £600 per month. I would like to know how I can get my share out of the property. How can I force a sale if he insists the property is in negative equity? Can I get an order to occupy if it can't be sold? And we have three dependent children who live with me. Uh, Can I become the landlord in order to gain the rental income? Complicated questions. Well, We've not, only got a little bit of time. Well, look, it, it, it's... That's me saying it's complicated. You're a lawyer. You're going to tell us it's not complicated. That's fine. Well, well I think it's it's fairly you know, it's fairly straightforward in, in this sense. You co-own property. You own 50% of it. You want to realise uh, that share and you want to take the 50% out. Um, but it's in negative equity in any event. And look, you're only going to get out of it what you know what the property's worth is your difficulty. How can you, um, or how can you make the other side sell? Well, ultimately, you may have to go to a county court and say to a court, make an order for sale, please, if the other party's not willing to sell. But my concern for you is that the other side are saying, well, it's in negative equity in any event. I think the best thing you can do, if you've got a bit of spare cash, why not go for a valuation, first of all, to see what the property's worth and how much is on the mortgage? That will give you some idea uh, as to whether it's worth it, you know, in pursuing. Um, with regard to, can I suddenly become the landlord? Well, you co-own the property. You've got someone who co-owns it. OK, that person... Um, Clearly, it has their issues themselves. They're in bankruptcy themselves, it would seem. But that person also has a percentage share of that property. So you co-own it. It's very difficult to suddenly say, well, I'm assuming all the rights of all of this. So I think negotiation clearly hasn't worked. You you may be in a position where you have to go to a court and say, right, I want an order of a sale. But what's that really going to get you? Uh, if it's in negative equity. The trustee in bankruptcy, I'm sure, would have looked at that property very carefully, would have got it valued, and indeed uh, would have looked at uh, at um, you know what charges, what mortgages were on that property already and worked out whether it was worth pursuing. The fact they haven't gone after it is extremely telling. So in terms of, well, can I pursue anyone for this? What's it worth is the question. 
Uh, and with that, Mark, we're out of time. Okay, mate. Thank you for your time this week. Mark Ellis, our resident solicitor from James Murray Solicitors, and he's back next week. Uh, if you've got a question, might be about property law, might be about uh, speeding tickets, parking offences, that sort of thing, do send them into the show. Surgery at City Talk is the email address that never changes. Surgery at citytalk.fm. And hopefully, Mark Ellis might be able to help you out next week. It's City Talk 105.9. <laughs> This is the City Surgery on City Talk 105.9.